This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, This is going to be a frustrating sermon for some of you today because as we begin this journey through the book of Hebrews, we're starting with an overview, which means I'm going to be all over the place today. Uh, I do want to say that many of you have already picked up one of these. I love this resource. We've done this for almost every book of the Bible that I've preached, and that is our normal habit, to walk through books of the Bible. Uh, But what this is, a little journal, it's with the uh, translation that I'm going to be using every week. So you can go to Hebrews 1 and look at the text and then take notes. So you'll have this uh, completed as I preach the series. I would say this, this morning I would suggest you go to the back for the overview and take notes there because we're going to jump right into Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 next week. I'm also thrilled this morning that in the tabernacle, and we know that they're always there with us, but we're never sure what's going on over there. Uh, We had the mix this weekend. Listen, 170 students from Prince went to the mix. Amen. Amen. We praise the Lord for that. Over 80 volunteers, and there's 150 or so college students over there. So we have 350 to 400 people in the tabernacle right now, worshiping and watching and uh, assume shouting right now, a big shout of praise. But we're thrilled that they're there and uh, excited to be able to begin this journey this morning through the book of Hebrews, where I have no idea how long we will be. Somewhere at the end of the year, Lord willing, we'll complete this book. But I'm thrilled to be able to begin this journey with you. It was on the morning of September 17th, 490 BC, in which 10,000 Greek soldiers went 26 miles east of Athens, Greece, to fight to the death. Behind them was everything that they held dear. Their families, their wives, their children, their nation, their homes, everything that they possessed was behind them. And in front of them, Not only this narrow battlefield with marsh on both sides, but ahead of them was 48,000 Persian soldiers prepared to annihilate every Greek man who had gathered that day. Now, this was an unlikely battle for the Romans to win, but yet somehow they won. And they won in what has become known as one of the more famous battles of antiquity, That is the battle of Marathon. But at the moment in which they thought they had won, they actually realized as they were celebrating the victory that there was another battle to be fought. Because the Persians, having seen their imminent defeat, retreated into their ships, where they began to set sail to Athens in hope that they would beat the soldiers there so that they could take the city. So the Roman soldiers looking at each other, not knowing what to do, decided that they would march back to Athens in double time in really an incredible feat of strength and would beat the army back to Athens to prepare the people for the Persians. But even more amazing than that, before the army started to go back in double time, they sent ahead of them their strongest athlete by the name of Pheidippides. 
Pheidippides started at that moment when he saw the ships leaving, running. And he ran over 26 miles in order to get back to Athens to warn everyone that was there that the Persians were coming. And it is there that we get the idea of our modern day marathon, this 26.2 mile race that Pheidippides ran in order to save a city. I do feel like in fairness, particularly for those of you who are marathoners, there is a couple of things that need to be noted about this story. The first is that Pheidippides was not running for fun. It was a more noble cause than that. He ran 26 miles in order to save his city from destruction, his wife and the children and the wives and children of every other soldier. I understand why someone would run 26 miles for that cause. For fun, it makes no sense to me at all. It is also important to remember the end of that story, which is often forgotten, and that is this. At the end of the 26 miles, after letting everyone know that the Persians were coming, he died, which is exactly what would happen to me and most of you if you tried to run 26 miles. Now, there are so many word pictures in the book of Hebrews for the Christian life. I mean, even just beginning in chapter two, where it says, be careful lest ye drift away. This idea of you reclining in the ocean and slowly drifting away from where you started. Almost every chapter has a different word picture. But maybe the most important for us, particularly as we begin this journey, is the picture of a race. And not any race. A race that demands a certain kind of patience a certain kind of determination, a certain kind of endurance. It really is a marathon. Because the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is not simply on running, it's on finishing. It's not simply on running, it is on remaining faithful until the end. This race that God has called us into is a race that demands we run with endurance. You could almost say, that all 13 chapters of Hebrews could be an exposition of one statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24, 13, when he says this. It is only those who endure to the end that will be saved. Who's gonna be saved? Those who endure to the end. Those who keep running, they keep persevering, they apply the kind of determination, endurance, and patience that is needed, and they finish the race. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved. You see this idea of this marathon race and this need for endurance in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to read some verses this morning to kind of set the stage for us, beginning in verse 32 of Hebrews 10. If you're there in your Bible, say amen. Listen to what it says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Here it is. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come, Jesus, and he will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Listen to verse 39. I love this. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and persevere their souls. We are those who remain faithful, hold on to Jesus and make it until the end. And then you know chapter 11, uh, that chapter which verse after verse not only tells us what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, but gives us example after example of those who ran this race. They suffered, but they endured. They lost a lot, but they gained more. They left something good, but they got something better, and they finished. And just at that moment in which we start to wonder whether we can finish, whether we can hold on to Jesus until the end, we have all of these examples of those who did it. And then look at Hebrews 12 and how that begins. After all of those who stood faithful in their fight of faith, it says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and I'm not sure that means that all of these people are standing around heaven applauding this. I'm not quite convinced that they're watching us. I think it means this. Everyone who has gone before us is bearing witness that it is possible through faith in Christ to make it until the end and not give up. They're witnesses to us. Let us also, like them, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us, church, run with endurance. There it is, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the author of Hebrews is not only showing us that this is a race, not only one that demands endurance, but the author of Hebrews is showing us that true saving faith, the kind of faith that allows you to leave this life and spend eternity with the Lord in heaven is the kind of faith that bears fruit and endures until the end. This is the one who finishes well. One of the reasons I think this book is so important for us and the reason I think an overview is important for us is because this book was written to an audience much like the one that is here today or online or in the tabernacle. They say, well, I'm not, I'm not so sure. You just read for us Hebrews 10 and they were getting thrown into prison and having all their property plundered, but they're more like us than we might imagine. You see, the author of Hebrews was writing to a group of professing believers. This is extremely significant. Much of our confusion in the book of Hebrews is because we're not sure if it's written to believers or unbelievers, and I would say it's written to professing believers. Specifically here, Jews who had seen through Scripture that everything they knew about the Old Testament, those that were deeply rooted, particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament, that everything written there was pointing to Jesus. That everything there, as great as it was, was a shadow of something to come. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises. He was the better priest. He was the better king. He was the better prophet. And they had come to see this. And as a result, they left their families, they left their temples, and they began to gather with the people of God. But the reason I say professing believers is because the author knows that in any congregation like this, there are some who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, 
and some who don't. So the audience is not believers. The audience is not unbelievers. The audience is professing believers. The author knows that there were some who really had trusted Christ. They had seen that they were sinners and had been separated from God and all of life was found in the one who created them. And so they trusted that Jesus alone could pay for their sins. They called upon the name of the Lord, had their sins removed by faith, received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, entered into a relationship with God the Father, received the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus had become their life. They didn't just know the facts. Jesus was the center of their life. They had started the race by trusting Christ and they were running the race. There was evidence. You could see it. You could hear it. When you watched their life and evaluated them, it was evident they were running a race. When you talked to them, it was evident by their attitude and actions that they were running the race that was set before them. But in the room were some who just professed faith in Christ. They had a knowledge of the things of the Lord. They might have even been able to recite the facts of the gospel. They could talk about Jesus dying. They could talk about Jesus rising from the dead. But the reality is, is that there was no outward really evidence that they knew the Lord. They had somehow become intellectually convinced that Jesus could be the Messiah. But even though they could recite the stories and knew the stories of the Old Testament, there was no real love and no real passion for Jesus' affection. And they might have even thought that they began the race, but you could tell that they weren't still running. Showing us that it is only those who bear fruit and only those who endure to the end are the true believers. And these in the room were being exposed through the preaching of this word that because they didn't bear fruit and because they weren't still running, they actually had never begun the race, even though they thought they had. In other words, it's just like this room today. That's always the case in a church like this. You, you get this many people together at church in the deep south, you've got a group of professing believers. In the tabernacle, there's a group of professing believers, many of which have genuinely trusted Christ and, and you're struggling and you know the difficulties, but you're holding on to Jesus and you love him and you're trusting him and you're, you're running the race. And those who hear you talk will hear an honest approach and understanding that, listen, this is difficult and I've failed a little bit, but I'm, I want Jesus and I'm holding on to Jesus. And there are others who can recite the gospel. There's no real love for Jesus. Matthew 13 tells us that in every church like this, there's the wheat and the tares. They grow up together. They look the same. But if you open up the wheat, there's something there. If you open up the tares, there's nothing there, just like in the church. And both of these groups are listening, and both of them need the message of the book of Hebrews. What both of them need is what the book of Hebrews calls exhortation. Exhortation. If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews 13, 22. Uh, maybe the most important verse in our understanding of the book, Hebrews 13, 22. You don't have to turn there, but, but write it down. At the end of the book, the author of Hebrews says this. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me this word of exhortation. Bear with me this word of exhortation. You know, and a lot of people believe that the book of Hebrews was a written sermon. It was intended to be a sermon. It has the flow of a sermon and this idea of it being an exhortation would make it feel like a sermon even more. 
But an exhortation is really the key to understanding the book because an exhortation is, is, is a passionate plea. An exhortation almost at times feels like begging. It's trying to convince someone that something is true. It is an urging to take hold of something. It feels what I hope feels like what I do every Sunday, which is not only preach the word and lay it out there, but say to you, this matters to you. You gotta take hold of this. There are consequences here. That's what an exhortation does. Now, an exhortation always has two functions, both of them in Hebrews. Sometimes an exhortation feels like a warning, a caution. For instance, in Hebrews 2, it says this, be careful, watch out, lest you drift away. If you're not careful, if you don't pay attention to Jesus, you know what's going to happen? Slowly, you're going to drift away and you're not going to remain faithful. Be careful, watch out. Sometimes an exhortation is not a warning, it's, it's an encouragement. It feels more like Hebrews 10, which we read, which says, hey, hey, listen, I know it's hard and I know the race is long, but don't give up. <laughs> don't shrink back. Sometimes an exhortation feels like someone standing on the side of the race saying, listen, don't go that way because you're gonna fall off a cliff. Sometimes it feels like someone standing by the race saying, hey, listen, I know it's hard, but keep going, don't give up. Persevere, hold on, be faithful. In other words, exhortation always has a harder side and a, and a softer side. And do you know that the Greek word for the Holy Spirit used in John 14 is the same root word of exhortation here? The Holy Spirit is the exhorter, meaning sometimes the Holy Spirit warns you, don't do that. Don't go there. If you do, there's going to be consequences. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just encourages you, hang in there, be faithful, keep going. It's good. God has better things for you. You see, what this church needed, these professing believers, they desperately needed exhortation. They needed someone to plead with them, sometimes in a voice of a warning and sometimes in the voice of an encouragement because their situation was a difficult one. We read about it in Hebrews 10. They're under incredible pressure. Every single one of them under incredible pressure. And again, in order to understand this book, we have to understand it was written to those who were in a life-threatening situation for following Jesus. There was religious pressures. They were Jews and they had left the Jewish community and other to join the community of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just leaving the faith, it was leaving everything that they had ever known or held dear. And the same Jewish leaders who sent Jesus to the cross are the same Jewish leaders threatening these new believers. So there's that. There's family pressures. You see, their family members would have said, you didn't just leave our Jewish tradition, you left us. You abandoned us. You, you left everything about us. You left our traditions. You left our family. You left our future. Everything we've ever built, you've betrayed by following this Jesus. So there's all this family pressure. There's also political pressure. I mean, again, remember, they were losing their property. They had been thrown into prison. They joyfully accepted, it says, the plundering of their property. There was very real dangers for their confession of Jesus Christ. And then if that wasn't enough, there was the fleshly and demonic pressures. There was the, the pressure just to drift. You see, in the Christian life, if we stop running, we don't just stop making progress, we go backwards, always. 
So there's this pressure to just stop, to get tired and say, man, this is a hard journey. I don't, I don't really want to run it any longer. I'm, I'm weary. And as we do, we start to drift away. And there's the pressure of the enemy who's constantly tempting us to go back to where we came from. And so here's this gathering of, of professing believers under incredible pressure and tempted to give up. And so the question of the author of Hebrews, and the same question I have every time I prepare a message is, how do you speak to a group like that? Like, how do you speak to a room with professing believers, some of which are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to say, hold on, it's, it's good. What, what Jesus has is better. But then at the same time, how do you speak to professing believers who aren't real believers and plead with them to come to Christ? And even more than that, wake them up to the reality that they don't know Jesus. That's a, that's a, that's a tough demand. And it's the one that the author of Hebrews is feeling and so what he does is he speaks to both groups with the same voice, the voice of exhortation. Sometime with a warning, sometime with an encouragement, but he is constantly giving this feel of exhortation, pleading with them to start the race and to continue the race and to finish this race. And so in the book of Hebrews, you have all these great exhortations. Listen to some of these words. He says, pay close attention he says, hold on. He says, whatever you do, don't drift away. Keep striving. Don't harden your heart. Hold fast to Jesus. Consider Jesus, which means give him your greatest thought, your greatest attention. Think about him more and more. He even says, fear, lest you should lose your faith. Run the race that has been set for you with endurance. Endure the hardship that comes along the way. He even says, make every effort to be holy, to fight sin, and to walk with Jesus Christ. You see, it's those exhortations that make Hebrews so special, but it's also those exhortations that make it so confusing. I was talking to someone after the first service uh, saying that they hadn't heard a lot of sermons through the book of Hebrews. And I didn't in some ways want to preach it because it's challenging. There's some hard text. As a matter of fact, some say seven, some say five, but there are some significant what's called warning passages in Hebrews. It's the ones you read and stop and think, well, am, am I a believer? Or could I, could I somehow lose my salvation? And just to give you an example, I want to go ahead and just jump into the deep end here and go to the most difficult of all of them and read it for us. Turn to Hebrews 6. I want us to look at this as an example of what's happening here. There may be no passage more confusing or frustrating or disturbing than what's found in Hebrews 6, but I think it's going to help us to see this. So look at there at Hebrews 6. If you're there, say Amen. Listen to what it says, starting in verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. So press on. Don't be satisfied in the shallow end. Let's, let's go into the deep end with Jesus. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. In other words, these are all the things you should have known. We need to go on beyond those. And this we will do if God permits. Listen to this. For it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Listen to this. Verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What better things? Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he says here at the end, it is possible to have full assurance of faith, to know that you're a believer, but what do you do with that? And then looking back at those who have fallen away. Well, it shows that, like I said, there are two categories of people talked about here. The first are those professing believers who have been intellectually convinced. And I would say it this way, they're professing believers who have been in the room like you're in this morning. They've been in the room. They've heard solid preaching. They've heard good exposition. They can manage their way through some texts of scripture. And you know what else? They've even seen the Holy Spirit work. They've been in moments when God moved and they saw people healed and delivered and they've been around all the things, but they're not true believers. How do you know? Because they didn't persevere to the end. And then there's another group. And this group, it says, produces a crop. They, they bear fruit. They have things in their life that accompany salvation, it says in verse 9. And they're doing good things. They're bearing fruit and they're not sluggish, but they're persevering until the end. What it tells us is this, that the true mark of a believer, and we don't know. I mean, I wish I could look into every one of your hearts and say, there's an authentic one. There's a pretending one. There's an authentic one and a pretending one. I can't do that. So what do we have? We have two things. We have fruit and endurance. That's what we've got. We've got fruit and endurance. This group, this first group, had all the right answers, knew all the right thing, no real fruit and no real endurance. The second group, they knew the same things, but they believed them, they held close to them. They had fruit and endurance in their lives. Now just imagine that um, I, I myself was a marathon runner. And uh, the first time I ever preached here three or so years ago, I just found a way in the text to make a line from the text to the fact that I was a marathon runner because this is what marathon runners do. In every conversation, they try to fit in the fact that they run marathons. It's super annoying. They even have bumper stickers for these people that say 26.2, right? And they don't like put them on the back of their Bible. They put it on their car. They want everyone to know. Now, I, I shouldn't be so critical. If I ran one, maybe I would talk about it all the time. But I do find this pretty obnoxious. And they really have an amazing keen. It's almost a gifting to work this into like tons of conversations. Well, it's going to be cold this morning. Then it looks like it might be, I don't know, 26 degrees. You know, that reminds me of something. You know, you know I'm being true. This is it. They all, 
all the time. I worked with a guy like this once, not here. I got one here too, but like in another church. <laughs> he was in the first service and I didn't say this in the first service. Um, and he won't go back and listen to this. But uh, I had a guy like this one time, we went on a trip and it was all of our staff and all the other staff members were taking bets on how many times he would mention that he ran marathons from the time we left Dallas to get to a hotel in Louisville. At like 12, we just lost it and gave up. So just imagine I was one of those guys, okay? And uh, I talked a lot about it and it just kind of worked its way into sermons seamlessly a lot. And it was just kind of a part of my identity and who I really was. And I just love for you to know this. It's just, it came up a lot. And I, I told you that I'd done 10, 12 marathons. But as you get to know me a little more, you just, something doesn't add up. Like for instance, you realize you've never seen me run. Like you live in my neighborhood and you see me walk my dog, which I do, but you've never seen me even jog. Like it's barely, always, some of you are not in your, you've seen me walk my dog. It's barely even a, like it's not even a brisk walk. You say, well, that, that seems weird. A, a guy at that age, you would think if he did marathons would, would, would run and he, I never see him run. And then you hear, and this is true, that, that my wife who gets up at about 4.45, six days a week and not only exercises, but leads an exercise class goes out well, I every morning get up at the same time and drink coffee and eat cookies. Absolutely true, every morning. He said, well, that doesn't seem like a guy who runs marathons. So you investigate. And what you find out is this. It is true, I love marathons. And you know what I love? I love that little number thing, right? And I love getting them and posting them at different places where people see them. And then I love the free shirts that you get. And I love the different places you can go to, to run a marathon and all of the different people that you can meet. And all of that's true. I love that. But what you find out is that even though I have signed up and entered and started 12 marathons, I never finished one. As a matter of fact, when I talk about how much I love the Boston Marathon, what you realize is this, is I made it about six blocks, saw Dunkin' Donuts and stopped in for a cream filled. Like that's, that's the real story. Now, if you were to hear that, something about that would make you feel like I had not been honest with you. Like, I think those of you who really ran marathons would be really irritated with me and the rest would feel that you're somehow cheated by how I have misled you. You know, this is how a ton of people treat Christianity. And I, I know Jesus, man. I, I can tell you everything. I know the stories. I know what Jesus has done. I, listen, I, I've started the race. I said a prayer at VBS when I was six or seven years old. But as you begin to look at them, it just doesn't add up. There's not a lot of fruit and they're not still running and there's no evidence that they actually are in the race and the Hebrews, book of Hebrews talks about them over and over. They've got knowledge, intellectual abilities. They've even had experiences and they've made a profession of faith, but they're not in the race. And what the book of Hebrews does is it says, listen, I don't know what your past experience is and your knowledge is, but just because you have an intellectual understanding of what it means to be a Christian does not mean you're in the race. If there is no fruit, if there is no endurance, there's no true salvation. So the exhorter is saying to us, listen, we can't know everything, but we can know these things. But these texts are still difficult for us. 
You know, one of the things I struggled with a lot, I started studying Hebrews really in depth, probably in October, in preparation for this morning. And I wrestled with this. I mean, does this mean we can lose our salvation? Well, no, obviously not, because we always interpret difficult texts with more clear text. Uh, The Lord has never lost one of his sheep, John 10. So those who begin the race authentically are secured until the end, but it certainly means there's a ton of people who have some evidence that they've started but never really did start, and they fell away because they never knew the Lord in the first place, and then you say, well, Lord, am I one of those? And even though we have these evidence of fruit and endurance, I think there may be a better way to see if someone really knows the Lord, maybe even a a better test for you. After reading the book of Hebrews over and over, I think the greatest test is this. Just talk about Jesus for a little bit. So listen, I know, I know that you that you know about the Lord. And as a matter of fact, I've found that many of these professing believers speak about the Lord in a, in a casual manner. Oh yeah, the big man and I upstairs are doing fine. Oh yeah, we're, we're doing fine. I got that settled a long time ago. I say, well, that's great. Well, just talk to me about Jesus for a little bit. Oh yeah, I know, I know Jesus died and rose. Yeah, I know that. And the demons know that and they tremble at that. But just talk about Jesus a little bit. Like, tell me about what Jesus has done for you or what Jesus is saying to you or let me just see what happens in your face and in your heart when you begin to talk about Jesus. Is there really any love for Jesus? And what you'll start to discover is that even though there's some that are intellectually convinced, there is no real deep affection and passion and love for Jesus. They're holding on to tradition. They're holding on to their faith. They're just not holding on to Jesus. And you see, the whole book of Hebrews, with all of its exhortations, hold fast, don't let go, don't give up, all of those exhortations are rooted in one primary truth, and that is this. The reason you need to hold on to the end is because Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than Moses, better than Abraham. He's a better priest. He's a better prophet. He is a better substitute. Jesus is better. There is nothing on earth that compares to Jesus Christ. What you begin to discover as you talk to people about Jesus is how do they actually feel about him? And we're gonna gonna get into this next week, but the reason Hebrews starts the way it does with no introduction, no, I'm writing from this place to this place to these people, It's because the book of Hebrews starts directly, immediately with Jesus. Right at the beginning, right out of the box, it starts with Jesus. Why? Because it wants us to understand the only thing that really matters in this life is what you're doing with Jesus. That's all that matters. Do you believe by faith that there is nothing on life and earth better than Jesus Christ? That's the question. The reason I feel so strongly that this book is the right place for us to be such a good place for us in this cultural moment is because I really do believe we're a lot more like this group than we think we are. Now I know at least at this moment, we're not facing imprisonment to follow Christ. We're not facing the seizure of our property as they were. But listen, just like them, every single one of us faces some temptation to go back to where we came from before we followed Jesus. Every one of us. For them, it was prison. For them, it was family. For them, it was political pressure. 
For them, it was the religious leaders. It was very real, but for us, it's real as well. Every one of us faces a real pressure, some, something pulling us back to where we came from, to, to stop believing that Jesus is better and to stop making progress in the faith, showing that we weren't really true believers. You know, maybe the best way to understand this book is to see it in terms of Matthew 13, where you have this parable of the sower and the soils. The, the sower is a preacher of the gospel and the seed is the gospel. And so we go out and we throw the gospel seed out everywhere. And some of it just falls on dry ground and the bird gets it and takes it away. It doesn't do anything. But listen to this. Sometimes the seed goes and, and it goes into this ground that's rocky, but it goes down just enough to bear some fruit. But then after a while, it, it dies out. Some other goes into a place in which it is shallow soil and it bears fruit for a little bit, but then it dies out. There is only one seed that goes into good soil and that's a true believer. And how do you know that? Well, because two ways they bear fruit and they last. Do you know what it says? It says those second two soils who hear the gospel, receive it and bear some fruit for a season Stop persevering in the Lord because of tribulation, persecution, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches. And what I would say to you today is that even though there is not imminent pressure for us to be thrown into prison, there is the pressure of the cares of this world, the ease of this life, and the deceitfulness of riches where it's just as dangerous as prison. And they're after you every moment. How many people do you know that made some profession of faith? They started, but just the cares of the world, they got busy. And listen, this is a pastor who is seeing tons of new people come to church, tons of people joining, and tons of people that haven't been back since last March. And it's not just because they're sick, and it's not just because they're high risk, it's because they got out of the habit, and we don't know where they are and what's going on with them. And I fear that some of them are gonna prove to be second and third soils. They were with us for a while, but they didn't remain with us because they weren't actually of us. So this exhortation to hold on and to be faithful, the exhortation of Hebrews 3, 6 that says this, we are his if. We hold fast until the end. The only thing that matters is are you holding fast to Jesus? Are you holding on to Jesus? Is Jesus the center of your life? Because you believe that he's better than anything you've given up. He's better than anything the world has to offer. And so here we are a, a couple of thousand years later, opening up this book and realizing just how pertinent it is to us. Because in this room and in the tabernacle, there are two groups of people. There are some this morning who are just in the room. And you can recount stories and you know the truth of scripture, but you're just in the room and you've seen all of these incredible things and you have knowledge and experience. But if you're honest, you're not in the race. Like things just don't seem to add up. There is a lack of fruit and a lack of endurance. And the call this morning to you is this. You gotta, you gotta grab onto Jesus and you gotta, you gotta believe by faith that, that Jesus is worth it. And you gotta make Jesus the center of your life, not peripheral, right here, the center of your life to trust him as your savior, to call upon the name of the Lord, to make him your Lord. You say, well, why would I do that? One reason. There's nothing better. There is nothing in life better than Jesus. And the other group are those of you who are real genuine believers, but 
do you know the warnings are still from us because the pool is still there. There's this constant pull and pressure for you to stop running. And what I want to say to you is that, that these warnings are there to help you to persevere and to finish well because believers listen to these warnings and they're not afraid they're going to lose their salvation. They're just aware that there's a constant pull in our lives to drift or to stop. And so what the book of Hebrews says is this, just hold on and keep going and be faithful and hold fast to Jesus. Why? Because he's better. He's just worth it. And every single believer in Hebrews 11 comes to us with one testimony. That it was worth it. I left something good, but I got something better. I turned my back on this, but I turned my face to this. And everything Jesus gave was better. So we hold fast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.